If you have a Bible, would you open it now to the book of First Samuel chapter 29. Today, one of our shorter readings in some time, only 11 verses, and uh, for some of you that'll be a joy, just 11 verses. Um, let me um, say that, and, and this will help me not to have to say it again, because you will ask me where my wife Pam is today. And my wife Pam is home, surely watching us uh, online. Uh, she contracted COVID, or at least tested positive for COVID, which means I've been exposed too, so don't get too close to me today. Um, but that happened this week, and in her interest of not uh, exposing others to it she wanted to stay home so hi Pam uh, I don't like to preach when she's not here because I can look over and tell whether I'm bombing or not by one look so I'll have to look at somebody else but with that said hear now the word of the Lord as we read the 29th chapter of the book of first Samuel continuing our series on David a man after God's own heart now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines says, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since uh, he's deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he becomes an adversary for us, or to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. 
So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the one who inspired this word, would be our teacher and our preacher today, that he would use me as a vessel through which to communicate your truth. And may that truth find its way into our hearts. We pray we would lay aside sin and every other thing that would keep us from hearing your word today and that we would receive it as a gift, as grace itself, and that it might work its way and will into our own hearts. This we pray for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that uh, in this day and time, many of you, like me, stream television programs and especially series. You like your series, some of you binge watch. I have yet to do that, mainly because I fall asleep. But if I didn't, I would love to binge watch a whole series on one of the streaming networks. But because of that, it helps you understand how the writer of the book of Samuel is putting together his particular book. And what he's doing is he's drawing a, 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 a vivid contrast between Saul, the king, and David, the one anointed to be king. And so he's, he's doing his shows, where, or doing his story with cliffhangers. We last heard of David not last week, but the week before last, where he had been challenged by Achish to go and fight the Philistines, I mean, to go and fight the Israelites as the anointed king of Israel. How is David going to get out of this dilemma? He's between a rock and a hard place. And then last week, we looked at Saul and his desperate attempts to get direction from God by going to the witch at Endor. And uh, where Saul was called, excuse me, Saul, uh, Samuel was called up, and Saul had an interaction with Samuel. And thus, Samuel, uh, Saul is now going to approach this Philistine army, and ultimately he and his sons will be killed. But now, in chapter 29, we go right back to the David story, right where we left him off. So it's a little bit of a, a technique here, a dynamic technique to hold the reader's attention and to communicate a point. He wants to maintain a continuing David and Saul contrast. And so he uses this vacillating pattern uh, in the way that he writes. And um, as a result of that, we come to chapter 29. And chapter 29 basically is the story of how David escapes really being in the Philistine army against his own people. And obviously, the way he escapes has nothing to do with his own power. We're going to see in this story a vivid picture of the mercy of God. The mercy of God superintending, as it were, David's life. Although God is hardly referred to in this chapter at all. And yet, behind the scenes, working there is God's hand preserving David because God had promised David that he would be on the throne, that he would be king, and he's fulfilling that promise 
even in the midst of David's cleverness and stupidity about running all of these places he goes and gets himself in a jam and how God again and again gets him out of the jam. Does it sound like anybody in this room? Have you ever gotten yourself in a jam and you just looked around and you said, I'm sunk, I'm done, this is over, I cannot figure a way out of here, and uh, it's over for me, I might as well just give up. And that is exactly where David found himself, clever as he was, brilliant as he was, that's where he is in the story. And so as we've read this story, you will note that the Philistine officers become aware. By the way, my favorite, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars um, is Ralph Davis. And Ralph Davis entitled the sermon that he preached on this particular text, Accepting the Philistines as Your Personal Savior. That is really kind of funny because that's exactly what happens. God uses these pagan people who were bent on the destruction of God's people under the old covenant and to destroy the kingdom and, and Saul as well and David if he was king, they were absolutely determined to do this, to take control of that whole region and extend their dynasty. And yet God will use these very people to accomplish deliverance for David. God makes the wrath of man to praise him. You're never going to get anything by on God. You're never going to outsmart him. You're never going to outdo him. He has his purposes. He has his plans. So three times in this text, as we're looking at the Philistine officers, you know, there were five particular lords over the armies of Philistia. And these, they're, they're kind of riding by for review and all of a sudden, after the four lords have ridden by, the fifth lord, Achish, brings his army by, and they see in the very back of that army, David and 600 men following him, who we know was a ragtag bunch, to say the least. Probably undisciplined, probably like Vikings, very good warriors, but not necessarily very good people. And they were following David. And obviously to the other leaders of the Philistines, they're going, I know what's going to happen. They're in the rear. They're sort of the fifth column. And they're going to attack from behind and kill off as many of us as possible before we can get into the war. They figured it out immediately. And so they called to question Achish, what in the world are you doing? Why are these Hebrews here at the back of the line? What are they doing here, and what are you doing by inviting them here? And so Achish literally defends David three times. He says, which is, uh, which is ironic, Achish takes almost 50% of the ink of this particular chapter. And as we review the chapter, uh, then we're going to summarize what this chapter teaches us today. So the Philistine troops are arriving at Aphek, assembly grounds as they prepare to launch Operation uh, Shunem. All five Philistine lords have arrived with their various contingents. At last, Achish and his Gath division pass in review, and the commanders observe David and his men among them, and they are aghast. They are undone. 
Why are these people here? Don't you know who we're fighting? This is, he's the enemy. And then Achish, who was not slow on the draw, probably responded something like this. Have you ever heard of mercenaries? That's exactly who David is, and that's exactly who his men are. He's been with me a long time, and he's been totally dependable, but the military brass will have none of it. They don't want anything to do with it. They argue from prudence and from history. How better, they contend, for David to get back to Saul's favor than by being a fifth column within the Philistine ranks and rolling some Philistine heads. And then the argument from history, or is it music, every kid in Ekron Elementary School knows that Israeli song, Saul has struck down his uh, thousands and David his ten thousands. The commanders are irate. How could Achish be so dense, so naive, and, and just so, such an idiot? Achish comes back to David to deliver the bad news that in reality is very good news for David. And so he says, it's time for you to go. You're not going to be able to fight. Go back in peace. There's little, a little more humor in the scene than is obvious. Achish stands there apologetically emphasizing how he thinks David should go with him in this campaign, extolling David's faithfulness, which he has absolutely no reason to extol. On the other hand, David, with disbelief on his face and exasperation in his voice, protests the rejection and has no reason in reality to protest it. The deceived defends his deceiver and the relieved disputes his relief in David's tirade after his tirade Achish as much as says look look I know you're as solid as the rock of Gibraltar but the commanders of the Philistines well they command they're over us they have power my hands are tied majority rules so come morning you got to get yourself back to Ziklag where David lived. Now, what does this chapter have for us as God's people? It's a simple story. Certainly, we begin with the assumption that 1 Samuel 29 is not the story of David getting a lucky break, but of a divine deliverance that is wrapped in the beautiful, tender mercy of God. But what particular witness does it bear about our God that will lead each of us to know him in a fuller, better way. We can summarize in several, op, uh, several observations. We've got to learn how to trust God more deeply. And notice, first of all, our first point in the bulletin, and there are just three of them. This is number one, the stealth-like nature of God's presence. God is so quiet, almost silent here. Perhaps the most obvious mark of this story about Yahweh's goodness is that it says absolutely nothing about Yahweh's goodness. Indeed, we have a text that almost refuses to mention Yahweh at all. I say almost because Achish does make a courtesy reference to Yahweh in verse 6 and alludes to God in verse 9 as if pagan Achish saves the text from secularism. Yet we have met this sort of thing before in the narratives of David. The Holy Spirit does not make everything so obvious in these narratives. 
Perhaps he intends us to think and intends us to ask questions. We hardly uh, need, however, concluding, thus the Lord delivered David from the clutches. We don't require didactic punchline to see that Yahweh is here delivering his servant, but silently so. Walter Brueggemann is surely correct, and this quote is in your bulletin if you want to read it. There is no mention of God here. But we are dealing with a highly self-conscious theological literature that observes the undercurrent of divine governance without being explicit. Yahweh is with David everywhere. He's with David everywhere. Surely with him among the Philistines as elsewhere. Surely in chapter 29 in those places where it is explicitly stated, the narrator is not so disbelieving as to perceive the outcome of the narrative as something we might call luck. It is not then the task of the church or us as individual believers to go back over life and experience and try to itemize the moments when Yahweh was clearly but gently, uh, quietly present to save and support. I don't mean a kind of self-fixated, trivial, existential overkill, but... I was so afraid I'd be bored uh, when I was a little boy at the dentist's office, but the Lord showed me on the table in the waiting room a copy of Sports Illustrated and in a grossing article. But as you ponder the ground you've traveled, the murky stuff the Lord has carried you through, the twists and turns of your life, cannot, can you not see at times glimpses of his silent mercy or his quiet care? There was no noise. There was no tempest. Yahweh was there, but not obviously. Remember when the Lord spoke to uh, Elijah, it was not in the earthquake, it was not in the storm, but in a still, small voice. God doesn't always do the spectacular. Not everything is a um, uh, one you know, we, we love those movies, especially that have lots of good uh, uh, stunts and lots of good uh, events in which uh, technology is programmed and computer is generated to cause all these amazing things to see. Well, God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's just quiet. Sometimes it's just silent, and yet he's at work. And we, we may wonder sometimes, why does God work this way? Why does he frequently work in such a subdued way? Perhaps because it's an interesting and challenging way to understand him. Perhaps it's something like, and this is a really good illustration that helped me see it. Perhaps it's something like a uh, young couple who begins to date in their college days. Each likes and cares for the other. But they do not feel at ease to divulge their true feelings. One, or... One or both may fear that they'll scare the other person away if they open up about what's really inside and discuss it too overtly. There's some uncertainty, and it's sort of an exciting uncertainty. The fellow would like to hold hands and kiss the girl, but wonders if the girl might think that's inappropriate. Maybe she just views him as a friend. She may not share the growing affection he has for her, but one evening as they're taking one of those reflective walks across the campus, it happens. 
Their hands happen to brush one another, and before long their hands are together in a quiet clasp. And this is precisely the beauty of it. An overt discussion about the proper calendar date on which they should hold hands or kiss would have wrecked it all. The reserve and the silence about the matter makes it so joyful and so memorable. Might we not say the same thing at times about God's presence? What a relief that his work doesn't come blasting at you like a television commercial. He doesn't necessarily declare it, but allows you to discover it for yourself. For if you have to think and struggle over the matter, there's more likelihood you will be led to truly intelligent worship. And so here's David being rescued, as it were, by the Philistines from his own dilemma. People that wanted him dead are now delivering him. You see, God uses secondary causes in his providential governance of the universe. There are primary causes. That's when God and God alone explicitly does something to make something happen, like creation. He speaks to the nothing and out of nothing brings for us a beautiful, ordered, formed and filled creation in six days and then rest upon the seventh day. But sometimes God uses secondary agents to accomplish his purposes. And in this case, he does so with the Philistines who unknowingly fulfill God's purposes. He did exactly the same in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because Pilate found no fault in this man that the religious leaders uh, delivered over him, but he foreordained the event to take place, and it did. Now, the second thing I want to talk to you about this morning is the astonishment of God's ways. God's ways are not our ways, and our ways are not his ways. His ways are higher than the heavens above us. The way God accomplishes his purposes cannot be easily traced and defined in in qualitative or even quantitative means or measures. God is God, and we are not. But God's ways are surprising. It may seem highly amusing to us, but the Philistines were deadly serious. The commander of the Philistines was exasperated and incredulous. What are these Hebrews doing here? And they were angry at Achish for his soft-headedness and to proclaim the glad news of deliverance. They tell Achish, send the man back. Let him go back to his place where you stationed him. He must not go down with us into the battle. That way he will not become an adversary to us in the battle. How could the fellow win back his master's favor? Wouldn't it be with the heads of these men? So if David and Saul are alienated, how can David get back into the good graces of Saul but ride in the back of the army and kill off everybody he can when we press forward for the battle? Even Achish's hands are tied. He can only repeat the gospel to David. Only the commander of the Philistines have decided he will not go up with us into battle. So here we see, again, what instruments does Yahweh use to rescue his servants from his dilemma, the commanding officers of the Philistine army. It was not the first time Yahweh had turned enemies into saviors. Philistines make such unwitting but effective servants. Who has ever been his counselor? 
The text, of course, carries no guarantee for me. It does not promise me that if I get my life so entangled by my own cleverness and foolishness, off track by my own short-sightedness and stupid decisions, that Yahweh will infallibly rescue me from my mess. What he's done for David, he may not necessarily do for me in the same way. What the text does teach is that even in our folly and fainting fits, we are still no match for our God, who has thousands of unguessable ways by which he rescues his people, even from the mouths of the Philistines. He can make the enemy serve as our friend. He not only prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, but also has the knack of making the enemies prepare the table for us. That's who God is. That's the God we serve. I remember when a, uh, reading a children's story to the girls when they were little in which a Christian woman alone and out of food was telling her plight to the father and asking for her daily bread. He went, uh, excuse me, somehow her neighbor, who was an agnostic or an atheist, overheard the woman praying and decided it was time to have a little divine fun. He went and purchased two loaves of bread, left them at her door. Upon discovering them, the woman burst into a devout, grateful prayer of praise. But her neighbor accosted her to try and demythologize the incident, informing her that he had happened to hear her praying, that he had bought the bread, that he had placed it on her step. It was not then God who had answered her prayer but the lady was armed she said oh yes it was the Lord who answered my prayer even though he used the devil to do it <laughs> he uses the wrath of man to praise him God's ways are so surprising and it's not merely an observation whether scripture in scripture or living he uses Philistines or agnostics or atheists to rescue his people and they think they're undoing us but they're not and there ought to be times when we throw up our hands and say out loud that God's decisions are unsearchable and his ways are past finding out but leads me to the third point and this is the point that I want to spend the balance of our time on. And it'll be two hours. No, it won't. Perhaps all is over for now, but the acting. At verse 7, one can imagine the massive relief that flooded David's soul. But that must not show. Hence, no doubt, Achish sees the shadow of disappointment and the flash of anger across the face of David. But what have I done? What have you discovered in your servant? From the day I've been before you to this day, I may not go and fight, the, uh, that I may not go and fight the enemies of my lord the king. A reader gets a trifle nervous at this point. Lest Achish should press for reconsideration, one is almost tempted to yell at David, Don't mess it up, David. Just accept the Philistines as your personal savior and get the heck out of there. So he does. And as we look at this text more closely, we see something that is amazing to us. The character of God shines brightly. 
Now one can see how Yahweh's mercy still pursues his servants, even in their follies and fainting fits. How strong, how tenacious, how unletgoable is Yahweh's mercy. Yahweh is not short-tempered with his people. His mercy and patience are not exhausted when we choose our foolish Philistines. Some of us have a tendency to construct and to believe in a God made in our own image who, when one of his children has botched a section of his life, he goes into a huff and out of holy glee abandons him to the fry in his own juice. Is that the God and Savior of David? i got, I got to confess something to you. There's not a great deal of difference in the characters of Saul and David. Both of them are sinners. Both of them are manipulators. Both of them are plotters. But one has the sovereign mercy of God wrapped around his life. Saul does not. And yet, it's almost like, I've said this a number of times, it's almost a repeat of the Jacob and Esau narrative in the book of Genesis where you get to know Jacob and you go, what a scoundrel. What an absolute con artist. What an absolute sorry person. And yet he's the one God loved and God set his mercy on. And I'm beginning to see that David ain't all that in the holiness department. I mean, he does pursue the Lord. And you read the Psalms and you see that dimension of his experience. But that is the result of God's grace and mercy, not the cause of it. The mercy here is undeserved. And that's the highlight of the chapter. God shows mercy. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. And he will show wrath upon whom he will show wrath. God is sovereign. He's ruler. He doesn't take the popular vote. He doesn't poll the room before he makes a decision. He's God. And he chooses what he does. But here, the beauty of it is to see what he's done in the life of David. As some of us look back on the timeline of our lives, we have no trouble picking out the occasion or occasions when we were depending on our own cleverness, our own wittiness, our own ability to assess and handle a situation confidently that we already knew the right way to handle and it proved disastrous and it nearly destroyed us. you don't hear anything else I say this morning hear this you are not smarter than God you are not and neither than and neither am I I have challenged that and I have lost every single time I got a batting average of a thousand <laughs> at, at trying to be smarter than God and I strike out every time he wins because he's God and that's exactly what David was doing here. He was trying to make his own way, trying to live in this. But the mercy of God pursued him. You know, at the end of Psalm 23, one of our favorite psalms, his goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. Now, if you've ever heard me pray using that psalm, you will hear me say, and may his goodness and mercy pursue you all the days of his life because that's what the Hebrew word means. It doesn't mean follow, it means to chase or pursue a suspect and catch him. And may God's mercy pursue us 
all the days of our lives. Let me talk just for a brief few moments about the mercy of God. The mercy of God is one of my favorite attributes of God. And a Christian cannot dwell too much on the truth of the mercy of God. God is infinite, and as such, so is his mercy. We cannot ever come to the end of it. We cannot exhaust it. We cannot bottom out on it. God is good, and his goodness towards sinners in our misery, weakness, and rebellion always takes the form of mercy. He has grace for our guilt, and he has mercy for our mess. God is good, and his goodness towards sinners in our misery, weakness, and rebellion takes the form of mercy. Mercy that forgives. Mercy that blesses. Mercy that treats us gently. Mercy that covers all, yes, even that unspeakable shame that you would never mention to anyone else, even your closest friend. God's mercy covers that if you ask for it. Mercy that gives new life to sinners who've thrown their, uh, theirs away, pursuing it in a million different broken cisterns instead of drawing freely from the fountain of life, as it were. The good news of the gospel is that the triune God has shown us mercy in Christ, and it doesn't get better, any better than that. In Sunday school, we were talking about ministry today ministry, reaching out, using our building in redemptive ways that God has so blessed us with, and reaching out to the broken, and I mean broken, undone world around us. And the only thing that's ever going to drive us to get up off our seats and do something is to be overcome by the mercy God has shown us. We are merciful because we see his mercy. We are compassionate because we experience his compassion. And that is exactly what we see in this beautiful text. And yet, sometimes we don't even think, we go for weeks without even thinking about the mercy of God. Many of us can think of any number of Christians who regularly appeal to the mercy of God sometimes to excuse or justify their sinful wanderings or their lack of seriousness in the Christian life. But you have to see that's not the same thing as dwelling or giving serious thought to the mercy of God. That's a juvenile confusion of mercy with careless license. Anyone who's given thought to the mercy of God will never treat it lightly. Considering the mercy of God with prayer and in the Spirit leads us to deep, faithful, loving repentance. And that is where Paul begs the Romans to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, as a reasonable act of worship in view of God's mercy. The first 11 chapters of Romans demonstrate to us in technicolor, in panorama, the mercy of God. And now Paul says, in view of that, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship, and allow God to use you as God would use you in his kingdom. And it's, it's amazing when you think of that. Thomas Watson, in his Body of Divinity, said a little bit more about mercy, and I close with this. He says, It is the great design or intent of Scripture to represent God as merciful. The whole narrative points up God the merciful Redeemer. When God gives Moses his name in Exodus, and recounted later on, God heaps up the merciful adjectives, slow to anger, compassionate, forgiving, 
but only one or two concerned with judgment by no means clearing the guilty. God is more inclined toward mercy than he is wrath. Luther called the wrath of God his alien work, his strange work. It's foreign to him. He only punished when his hands are forced. His mercy, though, it is offered before we even think to ask for it. Get that through your head. God's mercy to you has always been God's idea. There's no condition, but we may spy mercy in it. Even in our darkest moments, even in the roughest situations of persecution and misery, we're able to see God's mercy at work to save and bless his children. Mercy sweetens, as it were, all of God's attributes. It doesn't trump them. It's not more than any other attribute. God is his attributes, and all attributes are equally in their place. But mercy has a way of sweetening it. That is, holiness or justice without mercy is a threat. That's judgment waiting to happen, but with mercy there can be sweet comfort. Mer uh, God's mercy is one of the most beautiful pearls in his crown. It makes his Godhead appear amiable, lovely. Watson even points out that Moses asked to see God's glory. God says he's going to make his goodness pass before him, and I will show you my mercy. Even the worst taste, God's mercy, such as a fight against mercy, taste of it, the wicked have some crumbs from mercy's table. God makes his sunshine on the good and the bad. He gives oxygen both to praise him as well to those who curse him. Everyone, every single creature has experienced God's mercy. Mercy coming to us comes to us in a covenant. Common mercy is great, but the specific mercy we receive through the work of Christ is the sweetest. Sunshine is fine, but forgiveness, adoption, justification, and glorification are beautiful works of mercy surpassing all the rest. One act of mercy engages God to another. Some might think that God's mercy is just a one-time thing for you. But in fact, God's mercy is more like a domino set. Election leads to justification. That leads to holiness. That leads to glorification. And it keeps giving on and on. All the mercy in the creature is derived from God, and it is but a drop in the ocean. Every act of mercy you've ever encountered is actually provoked by God, who is the source of all mercy. If God working mercy through human servants, we see it. And it's just the tiniest glimpse of the reservoirs of mercy he has to pour out. Let me ask you this question. This is going to bother some of you, because the first time I heard it, it bothered me. We love the story of the prodigal son, don't we? We love that story because the son leaves, says to his father, give me my stuff. I want to go and live my life like I want to live it. Give me my money. I'm going to go swing. I'm going to party. I'm going to have uh, just a constant experience of pleasure and joy. And so the father gives it to the son. He takes off. And eventually, the money runs out. It always does. And the son, it says, is eating what is fed to the pigs. And the scripture says he comes to himself. And a lot of people say that's repentance. I don't think the prodigal son did biblical repentance at all. 
Because what does he say? He said, I'll go back home. At least my father's servants have something to eat. He's willing to go back and be a slave to his father rather than starve to death living his own life. But when he comes up that pathway and the father spots him on the horizon, he hikes up his robe, he runs to that son, he covers him with kisses, he gives him the robe, the ring, the fatted calf, and shoes. But here's the question. What if after two weeks the son says, I'm gone again? Is the party over? Is there no hope of second repentance? Is there no hope of any more mercy? Let me say something to you that should be a great comfort to you. His mercy never expires. His mercy never runs out. His mercy never hits bottom. I'm often asked by people about people who die who haven't made a public profession to the Lord or maybe articulated a, any kind of depth understanding of the gospel. And I don't know. I don't know what happens in the mind of people who are sick or whatever. But I do know this. I commit everybody to God's mercy. I commit everybody to God's mercy. Everybody. And you say, well, pastor, why don't you just answer the question? Well, yeah, if they reject the gospel, they reject Christ, they receive no mercy, then when they die, they are cut off from the presence of God and will spend eternity under the wrath of God in hell. That's true. But who knows what the mercy of God might silently accomplish. That is my only hope with any person. My only hope with any person is the mercy of God. Even the best person I know is the mercy of God. All mercy in the creature is derived from God, but it's a drop in the ocean. Every act of mercy you've ever encountered was provoked by God. As God's mercy makes us happy, it should also make us humble. As saints, we don't swagger. We rejoice. We see our need for mercy and we're humbled by it. Mercy is the opposite of justice. Justice is give me what I deserve. Mercy is totally undeserved. It is contra-deserved. And God shows it to us. Mercy stays the speedy execution of God's justice. Why has Jesus not returned yet? Some of you are looking around and you're looking at the world and the culture and worldwide problems that the world seems to be suffering and you say, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Why hasn't Jesus come? I'll tell you why he hasn't come, because of the mercy of God. That's why. There are other people that need to be converted, other people who need to come to Jesus. And as long as his mercy is operative, there will come a day when as a a preacher I used to sit under used to say, the, the father will look at the son and say, son, go get him. I like that because that's what my coach used to say at football. But there will come the day when he will appear. But why is God delaying? Why is God delaying that? And the only answer I have is his merciful heart, his abundance of mercy. There's still people to experience that. And sometimes that stays the execution of his justice to give time for people to repent. It's dreadful to have mercy as a witness against anyone. His final thesis is one of, is one of warning. When you made an enemy, even mercy, of mercy, then you're hosed. Mercy is your only hope. 
don't fight it. That's why the door, though narrow, is available to anyone. Christianity is incredibly uh, um, exclusive in the sense that there's only one way you can enter the presence of God with your sins forgiven and the righteousness necessary to go to heaven is through Jesus Christ. But Christianity is incredibly inclusive is that everyone can come through the door because it's by grace and it's by mercy. And it's not that you have to accomplish all of these spiritual gymnastics to get God to pay attention to you. His merciful heart cries out for you. Paul said we are ambassadors of Christ pleading for reconciliation for people. So there is the mercy of God. So when I look at this story in David's life, it's easy to be a moralistic Pharisee and look at David and say, he made a mistake here, he made a mistake here, that was dumb, that was stupid, he shouldn't have done that. If he was really a good Christian, he wouldn't have done that. No, the right way to read that passage is, it, what if your life was on display for the whole world to read it? Don't answer that. But what if it was? The point I'm trying to make is the Bible story is there to show us we don't have the sense to do everything right. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need a Savior. That's why we need rescuing because we don't have it. But in Him, we do have everything our heart longs for. Would you bow your heads now and pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful, beautiful text in the life of David. A short chapter, but packed full of just glorious truth. And Lord, how we pray that that truth of the mercy of God might engender or foster or even create hope in the hearts of people sitting in this very room who are sort of at their last hope and stage that they will see there's room in God's mercy for you. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as people who've tasted the mercy of God. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.